Well, good morning, Cornerstone Piqua and guests. It's good to have you. Uh, we are starting a new series this morning, and Lord willing, we'll be here in Jonah for the next three weeks or so. Uh, you should probably begin looking for the book of Jonah at this point while I'm uh, meandering my way through a long introduction so that you find it when we begin to read. Uh, it is in the Old Testament of your Bible. It, um, Jonah lived before the time of Christ, and you will find his book among the minor prophets of the Bible. So there's a whole collection of little books towards the back end of the Old Testament, and you'll find Jonah nestled in there. So, uh, but let me just say, if you have a paper Bible and you have to consult the table of contents, there's no judgment coming from me, okay? All right? If you have to go to the table of contents, no big deal, all right? Just do it. There's no shame in that. Don't be that guy who pretends he knows where Jonah is, okay? Just to be holy or something. You don't have to do that in this church. Um, if you really can't find it, you're welcome to use the Pew Bible that's in front of you. We'll be on page 774 uh, if you want to read along with us. And um, if you don't own a Bible, you're welcome to take that one with you. Uh, it's not stealing because I gave you permission. I am uh, taking my good old time. Have you found the book of Jonah yet? Okay. Because you millennials, you guys use digital Bibles and I can't hear the pages. So I don't know if you're there. I'm just going to assume you're there. Let's read Jonah chapter one. And then I'm going to go ahead and pray. And we're going to get to work in the first chapter here. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord." But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship, and laid down, and was fast asleep. So the captain came to him and said, "'What do you mean, you sleeper?' Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation and where are you from? What is your country and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this that you have done? For the, man knew, for the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get 
back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, do not, or let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea and the sea ceased from its raging and the men feared the Lord exceedingly and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Let's pray together. Lord and Father, sanctify us by your truth. Your word is truth. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear what your Holy Spirit would speak to us from this text. Lord, pierce our hearts. Convict our sins. Bring us to repentance. Glorify your son. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We don't know who wrote the book of Jonah. The book doesn't tell us. I think it was probably Jonah. I think it was likely it was him because really only he would have known the details of this story. But Jonah is unique. The book of Jonah is unique among the prophets of the Bible. It is the only prophetic book that has little to do with the prophetic message of the prophet. The only words of prophecy spoken by the prophet in this book are these. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. It's four words in Hebrew. Four words. This book is not about the message of the Lord. Mostly it's about the messenger of the Lord. And I think you'll find as we go along through this book, it's really about God And his grace toward undeserving sinners. Which turns out is the message of the Lord. You'll find that everything is upside down in the book of Jonah. Everything is upside down. A servant of God flees from the presence of God. Professional mariners are in a panic during a storm on the sea. While a land dwelling Hebrew is asleep in the hull of the ship. Pagan sailors cry out to God and offer sacrifices while the man of God says nothing to him. A storm threatens to throw every man overboard and that storm is calmed when one man does. Pagans fear God and the prophet flees him. A man is saved from drowning by being swallowed by a fish. Evil Ninevites are repentant toward God, while the prophet of God is resentful toward him. God shows his grace, and Jonah shows his anger. The man of God, 
the man that God uses to bring 120,000 people to repentance is unrepentant. Jonah warns Nineveh that God is going to kill them. And when God doesn't, Jonah begs God to kill him. And a book about a man who was eaten by a fish ends talking about cows. It's a weird book. Everything is upside down in this book. But the upside downness of the book of Jonah is a function of the message of this book. As I said earlier, this book is about grace. Grace is God's favor towards sinners, undeserving, even ill-deserving sinners, on the basis of nothing they've done, but everything he's done. Grace is about God forgiving sin rather than judging it. Grace is about God sparing his enemy's judgment. Grace is about God pursuing those who are running from him. Grace is about God's irresistible magnetism, drawing sinners to himself, turning haters of God into lovers of God. Grace is upside down, and so is this little book. So as we move through these, this book in the next three weeks, I pray that you would see that if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you have become so by grace alone. Let's take a look at verse 1 down to 4. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare, went down to it to go to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. See, this book assumes you know something about Jonah, son of Amittai. Jonah was a prophet of God. We, the original readers of the book of Jonah probably knew who Jonah was. We, we really don't, so we might need an introduction Jonah is mentioned in the Bible before the book of Jonah in the book of 2 Kings, chapter 14. He lived in the northern kingdom of Israel and he prophesied during the reign of King Jeroboam II. Jeroboam II was an evil king, just like his dad before him, and God's people suffered greatly under his reign. In those days, Israel's biggest problem, or so they thought their biggest problem, were the neighbors to the north, called the Assyrians. The Assyrians were a ruthless, brutal, evil, monstrous people. If I were to describe some of the Assyrians' exploits, I would probably have to put a parental warning on this message. The things they did to women and children are abhorrable. They may, they, these, what you have to understand is that the Assyrians were monstrous. They, they, they would make ISIS look like Mickey Mouse. They were an evil, evil people. And they had Israel very worried because they had a giant, massive army. And they were 
imposing on Israel. Guess what the capital city of Assyria was in Jonah's day? Nineveh. Nineveh. It was a giant city. It was over 120,000 people spread out over 60 miles. Just a wicked cesspool of evil and sin. The book of Nahum is almost entirely taken up in denouncing that very city. And in those days, God would speak through men, appointed men called prophets. Jonah was the guy in that day. He was one of the guys God would speak to, to give direction to the king and to the people. Jonah sought the Lord and gave counsel to the king. And it may be a little bit on the nose here, but Jonah's counsel to the king was build a wall. A huge wall. And shore up your borders and protect your nation. The Assyrians were not immigrants seeking gainful employment in Israel. They were not refugees searching for help. The Assyrians were seeking to destroy Israel. And so Jonah told the king to build a wall to protect the people. And the word from Jonah to the king was well received. He was probably very liked. I assume he was a bit of a national hero. The guy God spoke to. And that guy spoke to the king. I assume Jonah had a pretty nice, comfortable life in Israel. And all of that was shattered in verse 1. When the word of the Lord came to Jonah and said, Go to Nineveh and cry out against those people. That's a devastating word to hear. Jonah doesn't want to go to Nineveh. He doesn't like the Assyrians. They're wicked, evil people. They're his enemies. Plus, he probably really liked his life in Israel. It's easy to prophesy things when you're prophesying things people want to hear. Probably pretty happy where he was. So Jonah's left two options. Either he would obey the Lord and go to Nineveh or disobey the Lord and leave the ministry and run. Verse 3, he ran from the presence of the Lord. So he heads down to a coastal town named Joppa. He charters a boat to a faraway town called Tarshish, about as far away as you can go which is in the opposite direction of Nineveh. He leaves Israel behind. He leaves his prophetic ministry behind. Goes in the opposite direction. He'd rather take a chance on escaping God than preach to his enemies. Colin Smith writes in his commentary, temptation involves a convergence of inclinations and opportunity. Jonah's inclination was to run. Jonah's opportunity was a boat in Joppa. The lesson for us is that when God calls us to something we don't want to do, there will always be a boat in Joppa ready to take you away. Don't confuse opportunity for provision. Don't confuse opportunity 
for provision when you're running from the Lord. When you are resisting God's will in your life, don't trust your circumstance and don't trust your conscience. We'll read in a moment, Jonah was in the hall of the boat, asleep during a storm. That seems to me his conscience was doing just fine. We are particularly good at talking ourselves into rebellion and justifying our disobedience. Tell ourselves, God loves me. He'll understand. He wants me to be happy. He wants me to be safe. He'll forgive me. Oh, look, a boat. (laughs) Thank you, God, for providing this boat. We talk ourselves into silliness. And that's just what Jonah did. Do you notice how the writer of Jonah says, he fled from the presence of the Lord. Jonah was fleeing the presence of the omnipresent. That's silliness. He hops on a boat on a sea to flee the presence of the one who made the sea. And he thinks things are going to be okay. It's like seeking vacation away from people by spending a week at Disney World. And so we'll see how that works out for Jonah in verse 4. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. And there was a mighty tempest on the sea. So that the ship threatened to break up. Jonah's uh, book is very poetic in a lot of ways. It's full of these fun little things. Like in the Hebrew, the original language this, this book was written in. Literally says, the ship thought it was going to die. It's a big storm. It's a bad storm. But I want you to see, God did not allow this storm to happen. God hurled it. God did not allow this storm to happen. God made this storm to happen. We have to see what God is doing in sending a storm against Jonah. God is exposing Jonah's self-centeredness and his lack of God-centeredness. When we care more about ourselves than our God, there will always be a boat in Joppa and there will always be a storm on the sea. And that storm, Cornerstone, is meant for our good. Jonah had a comfortable life in Israel probably loved his hometown, his ministry there. If he was liked in Israel, he'd certainly not be liked in Nineveh. In Israel, he got to tell people what they wanted to hear, but in Nineveh, he's going to tell people what they don't want to hear. 40 days, y'all are dead, unless you repent. And now God is telling Jonah to go to the very people that he told Israel to protect themselves against. You build a wall, and I'll go on the other end of it. You protect yourself, and I'll go to the enemies, and I'll talk with them. I'll preach at them. Be a missionary to the enemies of God. And so he didn't want to go. You might be wondering why. 
he didn't want to go. Was he afraid? I mean, the Syrians were pretty nasty people and like Jews. Was he afraid? He wasn't afraid. It's much worse than that. If you have the Bible open, you can turn it to chapter 4. Jonah tells us why he didn't want to go. Keep your finger in chapter 1 and go to chapter 4. Look at verse 2. Jonah chapter 4, verse 2. This is what Jonah's telling the Lord. He tells us why he didn't want to go to Nineveh. That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. I knew, I knew you, God, were a gracious God. I knew you were merciful, God. I knew you were a slow to anger kind of God. And I knew you were abounding in love toward the Ninevites. And you would relent from disaster. So I didn't want to go. I wanted him to die. He wasn't afraid. He hated the Ninevites. The reason Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh is because he knew God would be gracious and forgive those who repent. And he didn't want to give him that opportunity. So God sent the storm to show Jonah his sin. The pattern's the same for us. God sends storms to show us our self-centeredness, our self justifying unwillingness to respond to his call on our life, to the mission of preaching the gospel in Piqua, Miami County, Asia, and the world. When you pour yourself into your work or your family, or your ministry and those things become more important to you than God himself and the mission of God God will send a storm and wake you up here's Colin Smith again you fall in love with your dream and the dream becomes an idol and God will bring down your idol. The culture tells us to live our dreams. God tells us to kill your dream, take mine. Verse 5. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and he laid down fell fast asleep. So the captain came to him and said, Hey, what are you doing? We're about to die. Cry out to your God. Perhaps your God will listen, give thought to us and save us. These, friends, were professional sailors. They knew this was no ordinary storm. This was different. So what do they do? They did what they knew to do. They call out to their gods. These were pagans. These were not God-fearing men. They worshiped a pantheon of gods. Joe, you got a God. Jim, you got a God. You guys just, let's everybody pray at the same time. Hopefully somebody hears us. We're going to die. 
Is there anyone else who has a God? Oh, there's a guy in the boat. Let's go get him. See if he can pray. And they get Jonah and wake him up. I mean, what a beautiful picture of religious diversity on that boat in that storm. You could probably put that on one of those little posters. Everyone being at peace and praying to his own God. No one fighting. But you'll notice, beautiful religious diversity, the storm still rages. They're praying to deaf gods, fairy tale gods, make-believe gods, because make-believe gods are no more powerful than we are. So when their spiritual method didn't work, they turned to a natural method. They lighten the ship by throwing over cargo, but the storm keeps going. It's not helping anything. So the captain goes up for Jonah, wakes him up. I have no idea how Jonah is asleep during all this. What did he pop an Ambien? I don't... It doesn't make sense to me how he can be sleeping in the hull of a ship. I think we're meant to wonder about that. I think we're meant to catch the tension in that. Do you see what's going on here? Godless pagans caught in a storm are crying out to fairy tales and the man of God is asleep in the boat. May it never be true of us or this church that this town is crying out to their idols while we're fast asleep on the pews. So the captain goes to Jonah. And, and here's the thing. Uh, I, 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 if you notice between verse 6 and verse 7, there's no indication Jonah prays. There's only one God that could stop this storm. There's only one man on that boat who knew that God to stop that storm. And he says nothing. So they're, they're desperate. They, they, start, they turn to dice. Casting lots is like an old form of dice. It was a way of discerning the will of the gods. They would cast dice. And then verse 7. Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots. And lo and behold, the lot falls on our boy Jonah. And they said, who are you? What are you doing here? Who is your God? The lot fell on Jonah. Beloved, listen to me. Your sin and your rebellion will always find you out. Your God cares far too much for your soul to, than to let your secret sin stay secret and kill your soul. What you have to see about Jonah chapter 1 is the sovereignty of God is all over this chapter. The word of the Lord comes to Jonah. Jonah runs. There's a ship in Joppa. And he goes to Tarshish. And the Lord hurls a wind and on the sea. 
And then the men throw lots and God makes sure that those dice fall on him. God's in charge of all of this to expose Jonah's sin. Verse 9, by the way, is the first time the man of God, the prophet of God, the messenger of God opens his mouth. This is the first time the one man who carried the truth of God opens his mouth. Verse 9. Everything that happened up to this point, he's been silent. May God be merciful to open our mouths with far less drama. And he said to them, well, I'm a Hebrew. I fear the Lord. The God of the heavens. Who made the tree <laughs> dwell in. And they're like, wait, what did you say? Who made the tree <laughs> dwell in? He made, this, he made the sea? Did you just say, you serve the God who made the sea? Wait a minute. You're a messenger of the God of the sea. And you thought that you would run from the God of the sea by getting on a boat? My boat? You gotta be kidding me. These guys are much more gracious than I, I would have been like, let's call for the plank. This guy is going over. I don't care if it does calm the storm. I don't want to be around him. But these guys are much more gracious than, him, than, than I am. In verse 11, they say, well, what do we have to do to get your sea god to calm this storm? We gotta, we gotta, what, we gotta beat you or something? We gotta like offer sac, I'd like to beat you. Maybe we could beat you. He'll be appeased by that. We got to offer sacrifice. What do we got to do to make this stop? And Jonah says, well, throw me overboard. I'll die. The storm will stop and you'll be safe. I want you to notice something about Jonah here. He, uh, he doesn't say, you know what, guys? I'm really sorry. I should just repent. I should just turn from my wickedness and put my faith back in the Lord. Y'all can turn the boat around, take me back to Joppa, and I'll head on my way to Nineveh. Your lives will be spared. Could have said that, I suppose. He didn't say that. He'd rather die. I mean, why why didn't he tell them to throw him in the water? Why just jump in the water on your own, dummy? Why you got involved with sailors and murder? And we should give credit to the sailors because they don't want to murder Jonah. Verse 13 says they dig in. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to the dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. The idea here, of course, in this book, is that when God sends a storm... There's no amount of human effort that's going to get you out of the storm. You're not going to fight your way out. You're not going to dig in and row your way out of that situation. You're not going to get God to change his mind. God doesn't, you can't out-stubborn God. He doesn't cry uncle. 
It just won't work. When they realized they couldn't row against the storm, look what they did, verse 14. They cried out to God. Jonah's God. The one true God. The word there is Lord. God's proper name, Yahweh, Jehovah. They're crying out to him. What an indictment on Jonah. Put yourself on that deck. There's a giant storm about to kill everyone and pagan sailors are crying out to God while the messenger of God is standing there. Silent. This whole thing's his fault. What you have to understand about the prophet Jonah He doesn't care. He doesn't care if the sailors die. He doesn't care if he dies. He doesn't care that the talk, that, that the clock is ticking on the Ninevites. He's going in the wrong direction. He doesn't care. So he'd rather die. He doesn't care what happens to him. He says, throw me over. Jonah's rebellion against God had so hardened his heart that he didn't care about his own safety and he didn't care about the safety of others. He had put them all into this situation and he wouldn't lift a finger to get them out of it. He does not care about himself and he doesn't care about how many people he takes down with him. Verse 15. So, They picked up Jonah and they hurled him into the sea and the sea ceased from its raging. And then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Jonah had locked the sailors in an ethical bind. If they obey the prophet of God and throw him overboard... They'd be guilty of murder. Maybe they'd face trial, but their lives would be spared. But if they disobeyed the prophet of God, the storm would continue and they would die. So you can either be guilty of murdering the messenger of God, or you can watch the whole crew die at sea. You're guilty no matter what you do. So they throw Jonah overboard to save the crew. It's interesting, they, the, uh, the Hebrew says they, they hurled him into the sea. It's this exact same Hebrew word. God hurled the storm on the sea. And as soon as they did, the storm ceased raging. They knew that was a divine storm for sure at that point. And so I suppose they're probably trying to understand what just happened. 
They just sacrificed God's servant to cause the salvation of pagan sinners. And notice in verse 16, the men feared the Lord exceedingly and offered sacrifices to God and made vows to God. That's the Old Testament's way of saying they worship God and they committed their lives to him. They met God on the boat that day. Once the sailors understood they couldn't fight the storm themselves, once they realized that their own human efforts weren't going to get them out of the storm and save them, and natural methods of lightening the load of the ship was also not going to work, once they obeyed God's servant, they were saved. They worshiped God, committed their lives to him. You see, as long as we believe there's something that we need to do to save ourselves, we will never truly give ourselves to the Lord. So long as we're relying on our own methods and our own wisdom and our own strength, we will always put limits on what God can ask of us. But once we've seen and believed in the futility of our own strength and our own power, our own gods, as it were, and once we believe in the only true God that can deliver us out of the storm, then we will gladly give ourselves to him. And that's what the sailors did. They were stuck in that ethical bind They murdered Jonah, or they thought they did. But that was better than facing the storms themselves. When you think about it, we're all in the same ethical bind as those sailors. What do we do with Jesus, the servant of God? Do we face the storm ourselves, trust in our own efforts and perish? Or do we obey God's son? Accept him as our substitute. He goes into the storm to save us. You see, God sent his son, Jesus, to us. And we nailed him to a cross. Our sin, our rebellion, sent Jesus to the cross. And friends, we are as guilty of murdering Jesus as those men who drove the nails through his hands. Your sin put him up there. Jesus was thrown into the storm of our sin. And our rebellion. His sacrifice meant our salvation. And like Jonah, Jesus drowned in the storm of our rebellion to keep us safe in the boat. Jesus is like Jonah in that way, but Jesus is not like Jonah in almost every other way. 
Jonah was guilty of the storm and Jesus was innocent of the storm. Jonah was sent into the sea of his own rebellion. But Jesus was sent into the sea of your rebellion. Jonah was not capable of paying for the sailor's sins, but Jesus paid for the sins of all. Jesus went into the ultimate storm of God's wrath and judgment and absorbed it in his body once and for all. He is the mediator between God and us, between the sailors and the sea, between heaven and earth. And he was rejected by both. Jesus was rejected by God so that you would be accepted by God. Jesus was killed for your sin so that you would be saved from your sin. The Apostle Paul calls Jesus a ransom. His life for ours. So in the end, what does that mean for us? Three things I think we can learn from Jonah chapter 1. And the first is you can't outrun God's grace. So quit try. Can't flee the presence of the omnipresent. The more we run, the more he will pursue us. And the more the storm will rage, eventually your boat will sink and you'll be lost forever. The second thing is peace comes only when we quit, we quit living for ourselves. We repent and we obey God. Peace comes only when we stop living for ourselves, repent and live for God. And the last is God put no limits on the price that he would pay to save your soul. And so we should put no limits on what God will ask of us in response. God put no limits on what he would do to buy you. So we should put no limits on what we would do to live for him in response. The price for grace for God was everything. What are we saying to him when we put a stopgap on what we are willing to give him in return? Let's pray. Dear God and Father, blessed be your holy name, who is worthy of all praise, all glory, all dominion, all power, forever and ever. Blessed be the one who sent his Son to save us from the storm of our rebellion 
Blessed be the one who sent his son into our storm to save us from it. God, be gracious to us this morning and move upon us. Convict us of the stopgap that we've placed over our obedience. Forgive us in our wicked hearts when we've said, This far, Lord, but no more than that. What if you had said that to us? Cause us to see your son. Cause us to see his sacrifice. And allow us to lay down our lives in gratitude and response. In Jesus' name I pray.